Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Greetings from Carlisle Barracks, Pennsylvania, and thanks for joining us on the War Room Podcast. I'm Colonel Buck Abrichter, United States Air Force, and faculty instructor in the Department of Command Leadership and Management, as well as part of the War Room editorial team. I'm joined today by Brigadier General James Blankenhorn. He is the former commander of the Command and Control Chemical, Biological, Radiological, Nuclear Response Element Alpha. For ease of uh, discussion, we'll refer to that from here on out as C2 Cree Alpha. And uh, in terms of the chemical, biological, radiological, we'll call that Seaburn for all of the folks out there. Uh, General Blankenhorn is at the War College today to address the topic of DISCA, Defense Support of Civil Authorities, with the resident class of Academic Year 18. And he's been gracious enough to join us for this podcast. Sir, welcome to Carlisle, and welcome to the War Room. Well, thank you. Sir, you, you operate in a world that many of us are just not even familiar with. We have very little exposure to, or at least we're not aware of how much we're exposed to it. Uh, can you explain what that title entailed in terms of the, the C2 Cree Alpha? What does it actually do? What are some of your, your responsibilities associated with that? Sure, that's a, uh, uh, it's a, it's a broad question, but uh, I think I can boil it down to uh, a few key points. The, under the Homeland uh, Security portfolio, there's a mission for Department of Defense to provide uh, defense support to civilian authorities. And specifically under, under DISCA, there are four tasks. One of them is to provide uh, support to a Seaburn incident within the United States. And so uh, there is a, a Seaburn infrastructure or an enterprise that's been developed that supports um, a command and control element that that includes both state, uh, National Guard, Title X active component, and, and Army Reserve uh, Compo 3 forces. Um, and so the mission is, uh, it's different than, than what we would normally refer to as our wartime mission or a green mission, uh, in that it's, it doesn't involve combat operations. This involves uh, providing support uh, to federal agencies uh, in response to a uh, natural or uh, a man-made incident uh, in the United States. And, and the DISCA uh, mission, as I mentioned, has three separate uh, units, uh, the DSERF, the Cree Alpha, and the Cree Bravo, uh, and just a quick note on those, the DSERF is, is primarily an active component, uh, Compo 1 sourced unit. Uh, it does have some uh, Compo 3 specialty units assigned to it. And, and just uh, to be clear, the DSERF, that is the defense, that's a Saberni response force. That's right. right? Yeah, okay. That's right. So they're actually responding to some, some sort of incident that's happened. Saberni incident um, in the United States. The, the C2 uh, Cree Alpha and the C2 Cree Bravo, uh, the Alpha is the responsibility of, of Compo 3, so it's primarily an Army Reserve uh, sourced element. It does have some active component units. It does have some uh, Air Force, some Navy units assigned to it that, that augment it. And then the Cree Bravo, um, C2, uh, CRE Bravo, is a National Guard uh, responsibility for sourcing. 
So um, in terms of the mission set, what makes it different than perhaps what other folks uh, are used to, again, is it's, it's heavy on, on combat support, combat service support. Uh, it's light on, obviously, combat operations. Uh, in terms of the mission sets that, that the unit performs, they're very, in some cases, very similar to what we would perform in combat. But there are some nuances, and, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about uh, what some of the training and certification requirements are to conduct the mission. But the interesting thing for me, anyway, about the mission set is it's, it is uh, about a whole-of-government approach. It's, it's about uh, DOD support to federal agencies uh, within the United States that are responding to uh, a C-burn event specifically, um, and, and knowing that the Department of Defense has some of the best trained and qualified resources and assets to fill that mission. Uh, it also is a little bit different from a command and control structure. Um, in this particular case, we're, the Army is not in command. Mm -hmm. uh, we're in a support role to a, another federal agency, typically FEMA, uh, but it could be any one of the 26 federal agencies that, that might have a lead uh, in response, but typically it's FEMA. Um, and so we're in a support role, and that's sometimes that's a little bit um, challenging for folks to to wrap their mind around a bit. Um, you know, we're we're trained and we're we're driven and we're brought up to take charge and to to get engaged quickly and make things happen. And so um, you have to put the brakes on a bit and understand that we're there to support, we're there to provide uh, specific capabilities when requested. Um, and others are in charge, and and uh, so it's a little bit of a different different concept for some folks to take take on. But your task essentially is is you know on on America's worst day when there is some sort of nuclear burst or dirty bomb or chemical or or uh, or, or biological incident in some major U.S. city, uh, you're you're standing everything up, and it, it takes off from that point, and you're you're beginning your defense support of civil Correct. authorities. How is that, what are the nuances that are different from, from someone who's doing that in a, in a hurricane situation? Yeah, so um, what we've done uh, in terms of the U.S. government, we, we've developed a national framework uh, to respond to uh, incidents within uh, the United States. And so for something like a hurricane, uh, as an example, we the difference there is that uh, over time, local capacity, state capacity has developed a great deal of response. And when you're talking about a hurricane, you're typically you're looking at having a week, two weeks notice. You know it's coming. You know what its strength is. You, you sort of have some idea of its track and its landfall. And so there's a lot of pre-planning that can go on in terms of preparation, in terms of moving uh, moving people around, uh, relocating folks, um, protecting critical infrastructure that may be in the path, um, and planning planning the response and recovery, pre-staging a lot of things. And so there's a great deal of, uh, of advance uh, planning that, that gets to go into something like that. When we talk about some of the uh, hazards uh, represented by a terrorist attack, uh, as an example, a, a nuclear detonation within the within the United States, we don't have the luxury of of uh, prepping the battlefield for that response, um, and so uh, it really comes down to um, 
wargaming those scenarios, making sure that we've we've rehearsed them to the extent we can, practicing them to the extent we can, and then uh, and then ensuring that that uh, again that when something happens, and you hope it never does, but recognizing that if something like that were to happen, it's going to quickly overwhelm local and state resources. Federal response is going to be required. Department of Defense is going to be the key uh, contributor to that. Um, to that support, uh, and, and again, we we train our folks hard for that. Um, again, we hope that they're never we're never called, but uh, but we also understand that we have to be as ready as as absolutely possible in the event that we are called. So it makes a, it's a there's a there's a unique uniqueness to response to a seaburn event, different than a hurricane response, um, which you know we when you look at response over the years. Arguably, the the response capabilities get better and better as as uh, civilian capabilities are are built out. Mm-hmm. So it's my understanding that a, a desurf element was actually deployed recently in support of of some of the recent hurricanes we've had. Is that a good thing? Why 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 are we doing that? What's the what what should the public citizen know about that? And and uh, what kind of positive developments are coming out of that? Well, I I do think it's a positive development. The um, so. So they didn't deploy the entire DSERF. Uh, they they deployed a specific capability that the DSERF had available to it. Uh, you know, I think it's I think it's very powerful. We've got um, for our nation, we've got uh, events that that occur, and again, as part of that prior planning and pre planning, we the states know where their gaps are um, in terms of capability, and so. Um, Knowing that the Department of Defense has those capabilities, and and calling on them specifically, I, I think is uh, is a great attribute for the for the DSERF and the C two CREs to have. Um, it, I think it's uh, it's extremely valuable in terms of showing and demonstrating support uh, to the nation in time of crisis. Uh, it's absolutely necessary in terms of. Of preventing loss of life and and mitigating um, mitigating the consequences and mitigating damage, so I think it's positive. Now the 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 area where I think we need to uh, do some additional or further consideration is that DSERF is a is a standing unit that has a specific mission and has uh, a set uh, organization with set capabilities. And and if you take a piece of that capability and deploy it on another mission so that it's now no longer available to the DSERF, again, you hope the DSERF is never required. But if it were, uh, we need to make sure that we've considered what, what our options and alternatives are in terms of should we backfill that, that capability or at least put another capability uh, on call. Uh, possibly from the C2, CRE Alpha, or Bravo units, or, or some other sourcing. But uh, but we don't want to leave, I, I don't think we want to leave that DSERF capability vulnerable um, while we deploy units uh, in, in support of our nation's needs. So I think, it's, I think it's positive, but I do think we need to carefully consider the consequences if we, if we create a gap. Uh, uh, so, in your position as a former commander, you had about yeah. fifteen hundred folks under you in that at the C two C R U. 
significant number of officers, presumably. Can you tell us uh, what were your experience with uh, with Army colonels or their equivalents in terms of uh, their experience levels, how well prepared they were for the job? What was what what made some of them stand out to you? What, what kind of characteristics are you looking for in, in senior leaders along the way like this? So um, just to, to back up a step, the the 76th Division is an Army Reserve division uh, responsible for operational response, and it within that command structure, it's a two-star command structure, within that, that organization is Task Force 76, which is also a two-star uh, command. So the commander in DCG of the division, or dual-hatted, is the commander in DCG of the, of the task force. The task force itself is is the element that has been um, identified as as the C two CRE Alpha uh, proponent, and so uh, when we look at at the skills and capabilities of the officers and senior NCOs that make up that task force, uh, understand that first we're pulling from a traditional uh, TONE division headquarters. And so you you get uh, uh, typically you get what what you would expect from uh, a division headquarters that has has had a, a war uh, uh, perspective and a view towards conducting and fighting our, our nation's battles. So when it comes to organizational skills, when it comes to decision making. Um, when it comes to to planning and logistics, uh, when it comes to mobilization of units, command and control of units, mission assignments, and those kinds of things, you you find a, a very good crossover in terms of capabilities. Where where some additional training is necessary to complete the the DISCA part of this is uh, those officers have to be trained on the DISCA mission itself, and there's a Army North um, runs a one week course to get DISCA qualified, and there's some upfront work you do to, in pre- preparation for that course. Um, but then there's also a, a number of, of uh, training and certifications that, in, in addition, that we, we prefer to run our officers through and senior NCOs because it's important that they understand, again, this concept of the, the Department of Defense or the Army is not in charge. They're a support organization. They get tasked by civilian authorities to perform certain missions, and then it's our job to perform those missions. And and so the the logistics of uh, and sustainment of the force under those types of conditions. Remember, this they're not battlefield conditions, but they're expected to be pretty austere, mm-hmm. given that we're responding to a, to an area that's had a, a nuclear strike. So we can expect. Uh, power grids to be down and water to be down and so basic uh, life-supporting necessities to be down. Protecting the force during during the conduct of those missions is is something that that requires some additional thought and leadership. Um, The the relationships um, is is something that our officers often have to to rethink and relook. Again, it's a lot of A personalities, and and now we find ourselves more in a partnership relationship where we're advising, providing uh, consultation to civilian authorities who are then making decisions for us to execute. And so developing those relationships, developing those partnerships 
is again, it's a it's additional skill that uh, we're not turning them into politicians by any means, but but they do need to be able to interact um, with with a host of different entities uh, that have different priorities, different perspectives. Um, so that that unity of effort concept uh, definitely comes to play and 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 is critical to to the success of any anybody that's working in in this type of an organization. So what I hear you describing in there essentially is uh, many of the themes we discuss here at the War College in terms of we're experts in the operational realm. We are right. so good at the logistics sustainment, all, all the things that happen that, to, to keep us operating in the, the greater DOD. That strategic realm that they're entering into is, is obviously a little more gray. And, uh, it is. There and is no easy answer as to how to build someone who can now uh, communicate with everyone that right. doesn't necessarily speak HUA. <laughs> and, uh, and and get out there and, and, and talk to all kinds of folks from different backgrounds and right. not come across as taking over on a regular basis. No, you're you're spot on. In fact, you know one of the things that we we also have have challenges with you know, we're we're very much used to operating in an environment where we have a common operating picture where all of our partners can can access that. And it's usually on on the high side. Um, when we're dealing with civilian agencies or federal agencies, they don't necessarily have those same tools and capabilities. Communication systems aren't as uh, what we're expecting and robust. And so how we tie in to the communications framework and network or how we augment and support it is, is again, a, a different task. Um, how we develop that common operating picture that, that whether we're developing it and sharing it with all the partners or whether we're helping another federal agency develop it and, and distribute it. Those are key things that, again, um, are critical and, and that our folks have to be uh, more strategically aligned on. The other thing that, that you mentioned, it, it's it's not the same vernacular, so we can't use all of our acronyms. Uh, we can't use all of our military symbols and graphics. Uh, it won't mean anything to the local fire chief. Um, you know, he's he's looking at what is where his water is and where his, where his routes are. And so uh, we have to, you know, we have to relearn and perhaps in some cases help others understand the graphics and terminology and symbols that we're, that we want to use, or at least that we would propose to use in this type of environment. And that's all got to be done very quickly. It's got to be done without, uh, without damaging relationships. Um, because at the end of the day, it's all about getting, getting the support and getting the services to the field uh, as quickly as possible, so that we can we can again accomplish the primary purpose, which is to save lives and and reduce suffering. So, so knowing that this strategic development of our officers is is more of an art form than it is a science in many cases. Mm-hmm. Uh, aside from obviously getting them to attend senior service colleges, where we ideally develop some of these things, do you have anything in terms of professional development, reading lists, or case studies, or things like that that you think would help people along the way with some of those concepts? As an Army reservist, uh, I also have a civilian job, and and as a senior leader in my civilian job, we're, we're constantly uh, teaching, and we have, we've got our own required reading list for leadership and communications, and so there's a there's a number of of uh, uh, both training and written formats out there in terms of of leadership in terms of effective communications and terms of problem solving. Um, Stephen Covey has got, you know, his, his seven basic habits, but he's not the only one. There's several different, different concepts. And so, 
you know, that's really all about about developing relationships as well as as providing the leadership. And so I would I would definitely w- would encourage um, our military audience to look outside of the traditional military leadership uh, references and look to some of those um, references that are out there in the in the civilian uh, industry. I uh, you know I tend to have to read I say have to uh, but but I tend to read those probably one one a month uh, some some different leadership or communications. Uh, document has crossed my my desk to, to catch up on. Um, I, there there are some other documents out there that that uh, I'm I'm reading one now. It's a little bit unorthodox when you think about it in terms of a leadership reading list. But um, for those that are interested in in this type of mission and the response, there's a uh, a book called The Great Influenza by uh, John Barry. Uh, and what it does is it, it sort of documents, it, it tells the story, but it's got a lot of technical content and a historical accuracy to it. It tells the, the story of, of how the, during the early 1900s we had um, the flu that swept through in 1918, 1919, 1920, and the, and the casualties around the world. But it talks about how that uh, about how that flu strain um, went through the the changes that it went through and how it was spread and where it started and and then the medical community how the medical community um, had to stand up to and chase this um, throughout the world and and there's a number of of uh, strong uh, examples of of leadership individual leadership uh, that was taken to set up what had to be national response uh, when national response capabilities didn't exist. And so it's a, it's an interesting read. It's uh it's very interesting from, again, from a science or biology perspective. Uh, but it, you know, it, it, there's a, without sa- sounding alarmist, it, it's possible for something like that to occur again, pretty much at any time. Um, we go through multiple strains of the flu virus every year, and and you just have to get the right combination for one to be um, as lethal as as that as that one was. So it's not a matter of of if; it's just a matter of when. And and uh, uh, there's a lot of lessons I think we can learn in terms of of, uh, of how our country responded to that. So it's an interesting book that I'm reading now that you know folks might be interested in. So that's a, that's a very valid point. We were talking about this in terms of suburban threats and in terms mm. of more along the terrorist lines of things. Yeah. Uh, there obviously are natural disasters that could occur, and by natural, I mean you could have some sort of strain of flu. That sure. We're used to seeing that. We've watched it over the last few years as we've had uh, confounding strains pop up. We always think of CDC or World Health Organization being involved with those. Mm-hmm. At what threshold would you see that the C2CRE is involved with that? What, where does that really step in and step up? Well, so, and, and this is uh, this is my view. It's it's probably written somewhere uh, in our doctrine, but um, the the activation or the mobilization of the DSERF or the C2CRE Alpha or C2CRE Bravo uh, comes after a presidential declaration. And so, you know, there, there are many events that occur throughout throughout the year, you know, whether it's floods or hurricanes or tornadoes or fires or th- those things occur routinely. 
Um, they don't rise to the level of requiring federal response because the state has and the local communities have response organizations and they're, they're, they respond well to those things and, and recover well. But at the point in time when, when local and state resources are overwhelmed and it then becomes a federal response required, a presidential declaration has been made, then you're then the activation of those those Cree Alpha Bravo and DSERF units is is imminent. Um, so if it's a biological threat like a flu virus that starts and then you know as we've it, it could be you know we we saw the Zika virus and how it sort of started to take hold and then we we got that under control. That was more of a CDC response. Um, you know, just recently you probably noticed there was another Ebola outbreak. Um, and so again, the who organization is, is, uh, is dealing with that when it, when it starts to cross borders and we start to engage multiple, um, either regions or areas or, or it becomes a threat to the, the U S, um, or when we start to exceed, whether it's physically exceed the capacity of, of responders or emotionally, we start to exceed the capacity of responders and we go to a a presidential declaration, then then I would expect you'd see uh, those or those types of units get engaged. Um, before then, again, it's they're not these units aren't designed necessarily to be the the upfront research and development capabilities. They're de- designed to be the response uh, and recovery capabilities. Mm-hmm. So um, so we'll we'll continue to see CDC and WHO and others take the lead to to um, first identify that something is happening and then take the appropriate actions to to mitigate and contain um, at the point like I said when it starts to exceed their capacity or are they are they unsuccessful in containing then then you'll see a national response or a government response in a situation like that is your organization read in from the beginning regardless of meeting that threshold are you being briefed thoroughly along the way, so it's not a, a full spin-up as you hit that threshold, or are you, are you uh, on board from the beginning of the, the uh, threat? Yeah, there's a, you know, there's obviously a, there's a number of um, uh, levels of, of uh, information sharing, um, compartmentalized information, et cetera, but um, the way the organizations are designed, we, we have uh, a structure that, that has early entry Type elements. So, uh, each FEMA region uh, has got obviously has FEMA resources that are that are engaged in staying in tune with what's happening within their region. The state obviously has has got its uh, its resources and and up to and including a state emergency operations center. We've got um, defense coordinating officials, uh, one per FEMA region. We've also got emergency planning liaison officers, which are Compo three. Uh, 06s from the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy that are in each state that are very closely tied in with state EOCs and with National Guards. We have the relationships with the National Guard units who, who again, are going to be engaged um, as things start to occur within their states. And so I do think there there is going to be advanced warning. Obviously, Army North and NORTHCOM as as the land component is going to know what's happening um, from a biological perspective, a natural biological perspective, as as things start to spin up, 
Uh, and then we've got a number of hospital and docs and nurses and those types of units that, that are involved um, either as reservists or guard members or active component members throughout the United States. So, so I do think there's a, there'll be a, a early warning. I think there'll be a spin-up of intel. Uh, I, don't, I don't foresee um, uh, the units being thrown into the mix without some type of a, uh, an advance read on and, and preparation, mm-hmm. uh, just, just based on how those types of things would develop. So you brought it up earlier. You are a reserve component officer, and you do have a, a civilian job as well. That's correct. Uh, we talk to senior leaders that come through all the time, and we ask about how do you find balance. Mm. And uh, more often than not, the answer we get is, well, I've never done too well up to this point in my career, but you need to do much better than me. <laughs> Any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I'd probably give the same answer. <laughs> I, 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 uh, so, yeah, I do work uh, for, a, for a large architectural engineering firm as a senior VP, and and coincidentally for me anyway the my responsibilities are are to manage and operate high hazard uh, facilities for the department of energy so there are nuclear facilities there are chemical facilities uh, processing facilities um, and it's not just the the operations of them I also have responsibility for for decon and decommissioning and then environmental restoration and cleanup so a lot of the things that um, that we have to to think about from a DISCA perspective, um, I, I do on a civilian side uh, for my civilian job. So, so so now back to your question, you know, how do you balance that? I I would probably say again that I haven't I haven't done well in balancing family life, civilian occupation, and then the demands of the military. And as um, it it's just a part of the job as you as you. Um, rise in rank and responsibility and authorities, the time commitment on an army reservist uh, goes up. And so um, it is it is difficult um, because something has to give. Uh, if, if you just look at the, the time requirements to do your civilian job, which is a standard 40-hour-a-week job, never 40 hours, it's always more than that, but that's what's advertised. And then, and then you put on top of that the requirements – uh, to perform uh, military responsibilities, it, it then doesn't leave a whole lot of time for family. Um, and so it is difficult. Uh, you have to make, um, you're constantly making priority decisions. You're constantly looking at, uh, you know, are there, are there ways to delegate uh, for others to do some of these things uh, for the civilian job and the military military jobs? Um, and so I would say there's no easy answer for this. Um, I, you know, I tended to to set up a regime for me personally that uh, that requires you know some time uh, on the computer or with the, with the military unit before going to work, and then I'd go perform my job, and the phone was always on, so you always was always receiving calls throughout the day, um, and then setting aside a, an hour or two at the end of the day to sort of repeat the process and so and then trying to allocate a couple hours to family it 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 never seemed to work that was always the plan but it never seemed to work um as ideally as you'd like it um and so it it does take some discipline um it's not the right answer is not to give up one or the other um or, or any one of the three quite frankly uh but um but you do have to have your priorities in order and so 
uh, as an army reservist um, and, and as a leader, I've, I've constantly reinforced, look, your, your first priority is to the family. Uh, your second priority is to your civilian job. And your third priority is to the military. And um, when you're performing tasks, you want to do them, obviously, to the, to the best capability that you can. And so you, you can't half-step it. Uh, if you're going to do it, you got to do it all in. Um, but, but it is, uh, it is extremely, I just tell you, it's extremely complicated. There's just not enough time in, in every day to do everything that you need to do and do it well. Um, so it, it becomes a balance of priority and it becomes a, 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 a lot of trade-offs. Um, uh, um, and having, quite frankly, having good staffs, both, both on civilian jobs and military that, uh, that can help ease the burden. Um, and then again, having a, having the support and, and love of your family that, uh, that knows that you've got, uh, you've got these demands and, but understands the, the importance of it. So, um, no, no easy answers. And I, 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 I'm sorry to say I probably fall into the category of everyone else. I haven't, cannot say that I've been successful. Honest answer. <laughs> All right. So parting shot. What do okay. you want uh, the American public, the listeners of this podcast to know about the, the disc commission or about the, uh, the forces that support that or Saberni or C2CRE alpha? Well, I think, you know, I think it's, um, first of all, I think it, it, we haven't done, I don't believe we've done a very good job of communicating to, to the military or to the civilian population, the extraordinary capability and, and the talent and experience that, that the C2CRE and the DSERF, uh, and that the guard response units have, um, it, it's an amazing capability, and it, it, it truly is, it surpasses um, uh, anything else that you've probably been exposed to. So, so I think the first thing is, is uh, you know, I would, I would propose that we, we communicate that skill and that capability, um, not because uh, I want to, to assure the public that uh, nothing bad's going to happen, but but I do want to leave them with the confidence that uh, if something were to happen, we we've got the best and the brightest ready and prepared to to step in and and uh, and make a difference quickly. I think from a uh, an assignment perspective, what what I would again what I would reach out to our military community and just remind them that um, as important as as assignments are. Um, if you get the opportunity to be a defense coordinating official or you get the opportunity to be a state EPLO or you're assigned to uh, one of the units that has a DISCA mission, um, you know, those are, those are positions that you ought to seek out. Um, they're, they're extremely valuable in terms of their broadening. Uh, they're extremely valuable in terms of, of uh, the strategic development that they offer. Um, they're, they're great opportunities to develop relationships with, with other federal agencies and, and um, civilian communities. Um, it's a great skill set to have uh, and a great um, experience to have. Um, so I would encourage our military folks to seek those positions out. Um, it it will only help in terms of uh, 
uh, career aspirations, um, showing that, that broadness uh, and the depth uh, that you get from those positions. Um, they are very high visibility, high priority units. They have to be ready. There's no, there's no second chance. There's no do-over. There's no timeouts. You get, you get one shot at it, and you hope that you never get called. But, but if you do, you get one shot at it, and you got to be at the top of your game. And so they're very high t- op-tempo units, very important, high visibility, well-funded. Uh, and they're, you know, they start, uh, the mission starts at the national level. I mean, it, the response, the capability and the ability to respond to, to these incidents is spelled out in, in the national strategy all the way down. So um, that, that's, I think, what I'd leave. One is we got to do better communicating the capability. Uh, and two, we really need to encourage um, senior leaders to take the opportunities when they arise to move into these types of units and get this, get this experience. Excellent. Sir, thanks for coming out to Carlo. I know the students appreciated their discussion with you today. Uh, we appreciate you taking time out of your, uh, your busy schedule to sit down with us here in the war room, and uh, we wish you all the best as you go on from this. Well, thank you. This was a great opportunity, and uh, I wish the best to all of our senior leaders out there. Thank you, sir. Thank you. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.